Welcome to the Evolving Digital Self Podcast, where we explore the conscious use of technology. Listen in to hear thought leaders and other guests discuss the human relationship with technology and learning to thrive in the digital era. Hosted by the author of the international best-selling digital self-mastery series and being at work, Dr. Heidi Forbes Usta. Welcome back to the Evolving Digital Self Podcast. I'm very excited to introduce to you today Meg Van Dusen, who is the, a clinical psychologist from psychology and the author of a newly released book called Stressed in the U.S. And today she's going to teach us a little bit about her 12 tools to tackle anxiety, loneliness, tech addiction, and more. And of course, to, so we'll learn a little bit more about her work and what led her to this. So welcome, Meg. Thank you, Heidi. So tell us a little bit about, well, you're a clinical psychologist, that's part of your background, but sort of what led you to this space of tech addiction and trying to understand stress, because we're also stressed. Right, 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 we are. You know, really, I have a private practice. And, you know, what I started noticing over the last decade or so, and then even increasingly so in the last several years, was that, you know, more and more people were coming in complaining of stress. Often people will complain of stress related to their relationships or related to something happening personally in their lives. But more and more people were coming in speaking about, you know, stress with regard to what was happening in our country, what was happening globally, worry about mass shootings. And then I also noticed that people were coming in begging really for help with their addiction to their devices, feeling really affected by what they were reading on their friends or their ex-wives' social media platforms. And many people were starting to feel increasingly lonely. And so I started digging into the statistics what was happening? You know, was anxiety really on the rise? Was loneliness really on the rise? You know, what's, what's happening here? Because it was such an obvious trend in my practice and in the practices of my colleagues. And indeed, you know, I actually came across some startling statistics. So I really began to dig further into the research. I also have two teenagers and they're of the Z generation. And you know, when parents get together at social gatherings, you know, the thing that I noticed was that conversation often gravitated toward what to do about their kids' tech use and the ongoing arguments that were happening at home, uh, the constant tension about trying to get kids off their devices and kids being, you know, drawn back to the devices, the frustration with the school who, you know, was actually requiring kids to use iPads and laptops for studying. And so these were kinds of, these were the trends that I was seeing, the trends that I was experiencing in my own household. And I just felt compelled to write about it. I love it. I mean, I'm very much in the same space myself. I've got two teenagers and having worked in the behavioral science side of trying to understand the human relationship with technology and how that's been changing and evolving and really looking at, you know, how we perceive that from different generations. And actually, I don't, I don't know if you've actually read my book, but a Digital Self-Mastery Across Generations, I really tried to dig into that. But I was really surprised, or I guess once I took off my judgment hat, which what fascinated me was the uh, sort of 
fluidity in the relationship that Gen Z in particular had with their technology that was much, or I should say, what I recognized was acknowledging my own Gen X behavior of trying to do things both manually and digitally at the same time, which created all kinds of different stressors, but also it created a disruption in my understanding how they related to technology. I know you mentioned in your book about sort of mirroring good behaviors uh, so that your kids can learn how to do it properly. But do you see any disconnect there in terms of how, you know, how we actually acknowledge our own behaviors around it before we sort of, you know, as parents say, get off your devices. And then, of course, we have it in our Oh, yeah. Hand. I mean, I think there's a double <laughs> standard. I concentrate a lot in, you know, my husband and I in our household to, and it's not just to model for our kids. My one son has gone in college, so I've got one now left. But, you know, not just to model, but just for our own sakes, the smartphone is one of the most addictive devices really that I've known in my lifetime. And we've got an epidemic of addictions happening right now. We've got opioid addiction. We've now got the new vaping addiction. The smartphone is right up there, but people just don't talk about it in the same way. And yet it is really damaging. It's damaging to the prefrontal cortex. It's damaging to the hypothalamic pituitary access. Studies have shown that even if your phone is face down on the table, your flight response, your stress response is triggered by the presence of it. Mm -hmm. It's the expectation, the awareness that it's going to ring, ding, ping, whatever that raises the cortisol levels in the body. So for our own sakes, you know, we just have, for sure, we have place boundaries. We, we never have devices out or around at mealtime, even at breakfast when we're running around trying to get ready and it's not kind of a formal sit-down thing, we still do not have them out. Devices for the kids are plugged into a separate room at night. And it's not because we don't trust them to be on them at two in the morning, although that can happen. It's really more about, you know, the fact that they might be buzzing, they might still be you know, forget to turn them entirely off. And the fact that the blue light does affect their sleep. So really try to, you know, create place boundaries for ourselves. And then that translates as modeling for the kids. But beyond, I think we talk a lot about, okay, what kinds of boundaries can we set for ourselves around technology? Because this is one of the many inventions that we've come up with, like smoking that we find out far too late is, you know, not so good for us. And then we have to back paddle and figure out, you know, God, how do I quit the habit, so to speak? And so while boundaries are really key, and I'm happy to talk more about, you know, specific ones that I think are useful. I think the other thing and the thing that I talk about in my book that's pertinent here is that it's not just devices that are getting in the way mm -hmm. of a healthy well-being and good relationships and connection. It's lots of things. And so if we can change some of our lifestyle habits, if we can just start to implement other things that don't require devices, like taking a walk in nature mm -hmm. or exercising without 
your earbuds in. Maybe you're riding your bike with a friend and you can talk. For implementing other habits, then we're naturally spending less time on the screen and with the device. And so I talk a lot about those tools and habits in the book that are good for cortisol reduction. They're good for increasing happiness and well-being. And they're also good for our relationships with each other, which those relationships that we have with one another are greatly suffering. And tech, unfortunately, is one of the reasons why. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that the tech aside, I think that element of human connection is so critical and connection with the earth to be, you know, to be in sort of bold terms, not just the physical earth, but what's going on in the world, what's going on in our space, what's going on in nature, and really getting our hands dirty, literally, so that we experience that. And I know you touched a little bit on mindfulness. Can you talk a little bit about sort of where that fits? Well, you know, I have a chapter on mindfulness because it is a big topic. But, you know, a lot of people have a misunderstanding about mindfulness as meaning that they have to sit down and meditate for 30 Mm -hmm. minutes a day. And, you know, many people say, I just don't have time for that. It's another thing I have to put on my list, right? Mindfulness is really just about being present. And it's being present in a compassionate and non-judgmental way. Mm -hmm. So you can be present with yourself and you can be, you know, aware that your clothes feel tight. And then pretty soon you start saying, oh my God, I'm so fat. That's not mindfulness even though you might be present to feeling the tightness of the clothes around your waist, there's a judgment happening there. Mm -hmm. So practicing mindfulness, and that's what it is, it really is a practice. Practicing mindfulness is really practicing present moment observation with compassion and without drawing conclusions about what's bad or what's good. Just being compassionately present with yourself, with the other person, with your planet. And I talk a lot about nature because it does reduce stress in the body. So being present when you're outside or even in your car to instead of swearing at the, you know, guy that just cut you off, maybe be present to your surroundings, including the, you know, beautiful sky that's always above us, no matter where you are. And so that's kind of the the really key component of mindfulness. And so if we are more present, particularly with each other, we're not going to be looking at our phones. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's interesting, you're preaching to the choir on, on your perspective on mindfulness. So I, I, I totally agree with you 100%. And one of my favorite tools to help people understand how to practice mindfulness is just to remind them to breathe. Yes. You know, it's just stop for a second and just breathe and listen to your breath. Listen to, you know, feel it in your body. Just take like five breaths. That's and breathing <laughs> exactly, and you know that that does bring mindful attention to the breath. But taking more elongated breaths actually engages the parasympathetic nervous system, which calms us. Right, it calms us. So, I mean, there's so many great things about mindfulness practice. It engages the prefrontal cortex, and when it engages the prefrontal cortex, you know, which basically means we're focused on a task. It disengages what's called the default mode network, which is the part of the brain that tends to ruminate and worry usually about negative things. So there are a lot of benefits. I mean, mindfulness decreases blood pressure. You know, practicing mindfulness has been shown to increase 
students' test scores. And we're talking just like eight minutes of practice. You know, we're not talking about some big six-week program. Absolutely. And I think what's also kind of fascinating while we're sort of thinking about both tech and mindfulness is there's so many great tools that you can use, you know, can help your mindfulness practice or help your meditation practice or what, however it is that you choose to practice it that are available through your smartphone, through other means. And so it's important to recognize that your the smartphones aren't all bad and no. that there are actually really great ways of using it as a tool to help bring back your ability to focus on your breath, be present, get out in nature, use something like Strava to go take you out on a hike somewhere, or, you know, use an app like Enlight that does binaural beats that helps reprogram your brain to thinking positively, or whether it's using something like Calm to teach you some, you know, meditation and mindfulness practices. Use whatever tools work for you. What is your feeling on the way that they've introduced, I think there's certain, I, I can't think of the actual app that, that our school locally uses, but I know the high school has been introducing meditation apps that they're available to all the students. You know, what is your feeling on the, the use of that in schools? I would rather see schools implementing programs like David Lynch's Quiet Time program. He's the movie director mm -hmm. who implemented that in the Los Angeles School District and elsewhere throughout the country, where they're actually teaching kids meditation in school rather than directing them to apps. And the reason being, meditation, when done in a group live with other people, can be a very powerful experience, number one. Number two, directing kids to apps, the chances are they're not going to do it. They're not going to use the meditation app. I know this with my own kids and <laughs> numerous others. Yeah, it's a great idea, but you know, they're, they're going to get on their phone and they're actually going to go to Snapchat or Instagram or something else and they're going to get all about the meditation app. And then again, there ensues the argument of whether they used the app or did their meditation. I just think mindfulness should be a part of curriculum, honestly. Mm -hmm. Oakland is another city that implemented mindful schools. And, you know, it really is powerful. The results are powerful in terms of the effect that these programs have on students. They feel happier. Their test scores are better. You know, it really does make a difference. So while it's I understand the practicality of it. It's like the smartphone's already in the kid's hand. Hey, look at this app. I don't know if it translates to those kids actually getting the kind of practice that they would be getting if it were just part of a curriculum. Yes, and I do think that it gives an opportunity to reach those kids that, you know, that you know, to give them the options because some of them won't want to practice in a group or, you know, that doesn't work for them whereas this gives them an opportunity to do it in a non-judgmental space that, that, you know, that may be that super cool kid that, you know, doesn't want to be all woo-woo and mindfulness, and yet he goes home and does his app for 20 minutes a day, and it's helping him, you know, get that baseline. So I think it's yeah. hard to generalize. I think it's more that, you know, the more opportunities they have to get exposed to how mindfulness impacts their, you know, their well-being, I think the best, as long as we can it's, give her different it's, options. It's so true. And, and you're absolutely right in that, you know, the, the smartphone, it's, this is not a black and white thing. It's not an, a terrible device. 
it's given us access to so many things, just like what you're saying. I think the the thing that I think about with uh, kids and teens in particular is that you know their brain is still developing and they have not entirely grown the ability to regulate themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, the average teen spends nine hours a day, you know, on screen media. Forty six percent of that time is on a smartphone, and you know what studies are showing now is that people are experiencing separation anxiety. <laughs> like the majority, some almost 75% of people, when they don't have their smartphone. I do see that as the problem. And so I just think that it's so tricky Mm -hmm. because you're absolutely right. There's great information. There are some wonderful apps out there, meditation or otherwise, for kids and adults. But it's so difficult. It's easier for us as adults and even it's hard for us, but you know, it is easier compared to kids to be able to set some boundaries and regulate ourselves a little bit more. For them, it's really hard. And so if we are directing them to the apps, I think we also have to be directing them to apps like Moment and things like that, that illuminate tracking their time on the device and how much time is you know okay and when does it start becoming damaging. Absolutely. And I want to circle back a little bit because your larger topic is stress in the US. And as we all feel, particularly right now, because there's a lot of, you know, we're in this, you know, political climate that is very stressful for everybody because it is a lot of feeling of black and white. And, and there, because of social media and other ways that journalism is reaching us, it's hard to get the right information. And it's only, it tends to be filtered so that we get more of the information that's sort of from our belief system and our tribe, if you will, rather than getting more balanced perspectives. And that can exacerbate or help, you know, the situation. So what is your feeling there in terms of, you know, what are some good tools that we can use to manage those types of triggers as well? Well, news comes to us, you know, in spades. It's everywhere. You know, it's every time we open our device, it's TVs in restaurants, it's on treadmills. And so we're really inundated with it. and. Unfortunately, so much of it is negative these days. And while I 100% believe in staying informed, I think that what people don't realize is that so many people actually try to de-stress by going to their device. And so they're just getting more of what's stressing them out. They're just getting more, whether it's via social media or whether it's via news apps, they're getting more bombardment of all of this information. And it's really easy then to start losing perspective and just be angry, right? Just be kind of agitated. So I go back to the importance of taking breaks, of implementing habits that are good for your brain and your body and don't involve the screen so that you can start to quiet the mind a bit calm the nervous system a bit, whether that's go out in nature, you know, whether that's exercise is extremely helpful for regulating, you know, neurotransmitters and for increasing well-being and for decreasing anxiety, whether it be the mindfulness practices that we talk about. But in addition to that, I think one of the things that is a component of mindfulness that I actually talk about as a separate tool is releasing judgment. And, 
you know, we're living in such a divisive culture right now. And it's so easy to make very quick judgment calls and for people to get instantly riled. Mm -hmm. And I think if we're not doing things to calm our nervous system, if we're not taking mindful breaks, that's the direction that we go. If we do take mindful breaks and do what I call widen the lens and look at the big picture, really, when we come down to it, what is the big picture? We're all human beings. We're all struggling in some way or another, some of us more than others, but we're all struggling. We're all human beings. We all have the potential to want to do what's right. And whether everybody's tuned into that or not, you know, is up for debate, but just to try to come back to that basic fact and then see if you can start releasing judgment enough to get clear about what can I do? What is it that I can do that's proactive, whether it be something as simple as, you know, donating to some climate change organization, or whether it be something more extensive, like volunteering for Planned Parenthood? Just what can I do, rather than sort of fighting or complaining about the other side? Mm. Absolutely. And I I was just reading BJ Fogg's new book, Tiny Habits. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it it is those tiny little things. It's making that little bit of effort each day to change your habits or to change your mindset on some of those things. And I know for myself, one of those big things that I stress about, which, you know, you feel you have no control over is climate. And so I've been trying to look at how can we create an environment, you know, that's living more zero waste based. And But, you know, that's a big change. And so it's making those little adjustments each day instead of feeling like, oh, my God, we're all going to die. It's all over. You know, (laughs) there's nothing we can do. Exactly. Doing those little bit of things, it feels like, okay, well, maybe I can adjust this. And then if I show everybody else what I've done because it works, then maybe I can shift that needle just a little bit and... How do you introduce those things without it feeling so overwhelming? Because some of these are big ideas, whether it's political or whether it's climate and and the earth or whether it's a relationship and, you know, trying to communicate with your children, for example, when they're teenagers, I'm sure, you know, there's moments where you're like, they don't talk to me anymore. And then all of a sudden a year goes by and they're your new best friend and they've discovered you as a human being. But it's how do you create that shift so that you can, you know, be ready for that? So I'm curious, what are some of the little shifts that you do personally, but also what do you recommend to your clients that can help sort of open them to those tiny steps? Well, I think what you're talking about there is moving out of a reactive state of mind and moving into a contemplative one, really. And because we're chronically stressed, and I'm talking, you know, roughly 75% of us, it's a startling statistic, we are more in more of a reactive state. And that includes throwing our hands up in the air and saying, it's all a done deal. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of people are struggling with the concept of hope and, you know, therefore don't feel very motivated, you know, to donate to the climate change place or to volunteer at the Planned Parenthood, you know, organization or whatever they want to do. And I think what's important is to understand again, when you do implement these little habits, such as 
and I do talk to my clients about this quite a bit, and I do these things myself, such as exercise. I'm going to implement exercise five to six days a week. Okay, so you know, studies show that only 23 or 25% of Americans actually meet the recommended exercise program. It's actually higher right? than um, I thought it would be. <laughs> it's, yeah, yeah, right. It, it's still pretty low. You know, that's one thing. And I do talk to my clients about start with one thing, because if you feel completely overwhelmed with, oh, great, I've got to eat right, I've got to exercise, now I got to meditate, you're just going to throw your hands up in the air. But if you choose something, and for people that are really overwhelmed or quite depressed, sometimes I just have people do the simple act of getting up in the morning, looking at themselves in the mirror, and saying, how are you, Heidi? Mm. Actually looking at themselves. You know, we're looking at our phones so much that we've lost the art of eye contact. I talk about that in the book. And it's not just with other people, it's with ourselves. We're mm-hmm. really estranged from ourselves. We're busy, busy, busy involved in something outside ourselves. We're not with ourselves. Sometimes that simple connection can just bring everything into focus that you're a human being and that you care about yourself. And a lot of people will say, yeah, I don't feel anything or it feels contrived. And I tell them to keep doing it because Mm -hmm. what you practice does grow stronger and that eventually something will shift. Other things that people can do are to take mini, what I call mini vacations during the day or mini breaks where they remove themselves from their workspace and take even a 10-minute break to go outside and just sit under a tree without their device, notice the leaves on the tree, feel the wind on their face, or to take a five-minute break at your desk, close your eyes, and just do a breathing exercise where you're counting into five and out to five. That's just focusing your mind, decreasing your stress hormones so that you can be in a less reactive state, you can be more mindful about how you go about your life, and you can be more in touch with what you really want. The last thing I, I want to say, you know, it has to do with what you were talking about, you know, sometimes just feeling overwhelmed about things like climate change that feels so big, and that is hope. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really important to know that there are formulas to hope, that hope has been studied inside and out, and hope is attainable. It really entails thinking, again, getting into a mindful, quiet place so you can think about what your goals are, what you want to achieve. You can establish some steps towards those goals. And then what's really key about the kind of the hope formula, as I call it, is making sure that you also anticipate what obstacles could get in the way from those steps that you've decided to take. And how would you get around those obstacles? So you could do that with a visualization, you could write it all down on paper. So you have two or three obstacles that could get in the way to your goal and what you're going to do to get around it. And then the third piece is, how are you going to motivate yourself to take those steps? And this is where I really talk about people practicing changing their inner dialogue. Mm. Most people are hard on themselves. Most people are mean to themselves, really. And so really starting to say, okay, Heidi, I know you're really tired today. And yet, let's do just step number one. It'll take 10 minutes. And then after that, 
you know, let's just take a little rest on the couch. Mm-hmm. So it's just a kind, gentle, sweet way to talk to yourself versus, yeah, you're probably not going to do your steps because you're always tired, you know, you're just going to fail at that again. And a lot of people, unfortunately, do speak to themselves in that, in the, in the way I just proposed. So really being attentive to how you speak to yourself will make a difference as to whether you get off the couch or not. Absolutely. And I think that really comes back to something that's so critical that we sort of forget to do. And and that's be kind. And that's being kind to yourself, being kind to when you're engaging with others and, and when you're engaging with you know the world around you. And that kindness piece really can create a big shift. I definitely, that's one of the things I do for myself is sort of constantly yeah. reminding myself, okay, well, am I Am I being kind to myself? Because if I'm not, like maybe that's why I feel so crappy. <laughs> you know, it's like just take a note alone and say it's okay. It's okay to have a crappy day. <laughs> you know? Yeah, there's another so, one tomorrow. <laughs> it's know? so oppressive, right, for us to try to motivate ourselves with negative reinforcement. It's just oppressive, and that leads to a depressed state. Absolutely. Yeah. So that you know, and some people feel like I'm talking to myself. That's weird. Actually, you're talking to yourself all the time. You just don't realize it. We're just trying to change the way you're talking to yourself. So true. Now, before I could talk to you for hours, because I just, I, I love what you're working on and we're in very much the same space. So, as I was saying in the Green Mountain, it's always exciting to hear somebody else's perspective when even if it's just slightly different from your own. But one of the things that I want to touch on and not go too much into the theoretical background of it, because our listeners out there may not necessarily be interested in that piece, but where we talked a little bit about attachment theory and how that really fits in with one of the, some of the things that we're experiencing now. Can you just sort of in a nutshell explain where that fits in the context of, you know, some of the things that we're really struggling with today and, you know, how that can help to understand the potential for hope. Well, attachment theory is based in not only psychological research, but neurobiological research that postulates that when we have safe and consistent and nurturing responses from our primary caregiver as babies, we develop a good HPA system. That's the hypothalamic pituitary access system that regulates stress. We also develop our brains well, and that translates to being able to navigate life better. We can also have what are called secure attachments as adults with our romantic partners or our friends, and we can even have a secure or an insecure attachment to our nation. And so some of the things that are happening really since the year 2000, whether they be national events like 9-11 or the current political divide or the pervasive use of smartphones, those cultural and, uh, you know, phenomenon and, and events are really getting in the way of what we as psychologists call secure attachment. Why do you want a secure attachment? Life goes better. You're happier. You're more able to handle stress. You're more able to think clearly just to navigate relationships well. You feel happier. And so the question that I address in the book is, because the fact is our secure attachments are being disrupted by these events and cultural changes. And part of the reason I'm sure why 75% of us are moderately to extremely lonely, which is a true and recent statistic, 
it's important to figure out how do we start, you know, creating some safety and security where it's been lost. Really, when we have secure attachment, we feel safer, we feel less threatened. So one simple thing I, I discuss in the book is eye contact. It's just a fact. It's nobody's fault. We're looking down at our phones more than we are at each other. It's just a fact. It's so easy to have your nose in your email and yell goodbye to your kid as he walks out the door to school rather than closing the laptop, going over, looking him in the eye and giving him a hug. And I just think that if we're mindful, we can create more eye contact, even with the grocery store clerk. When we have eye contact with each other, we increase oxytocin, which is the social, social feel-good hormone, which makes us want to connect with each other more and, and reestablish trust in one another. A lot of trust has been broken, unfortunately, via social media. And so we really have to be mindful as to how can we reestablish connection and trust with one another. And being mindful about eye contact is a simple way that you can weave that practice into your day without it being one more thing on your to-do list. That's such an easy and yet challenging thing to do. And I think I want to challenge all of you digital selfers out there today to just, that'll be your tiny test for the day. Just go around and make eye contact with people. You know, when you're walking down the street, when you're walking down the hall in your office, when you, like you said, at the grocery store or the bank teller, make eye contact, say hello, try even, you know, your second challenge will be smile and yeah. see if that actually spreads. I often do that when I'm speaking is I get people to sort of just look at the person next to them and smile and see how that feels. Just well, how yes. does that trigger your whole body changes and the way that you engage with people? And again, it's one of those little, little things, but it makes a huge huge difference. And yes. I love the way that you sort of integrate that. And and I think, you know, one of the things that I did with, with my research was also looking at how we can actually even do that in mediated environments. You know, like you and I are on are having this conversation over Zoom and just being able to see you physically, you, you know, even though we're in different parts of the country, there's a different kind of dynamic and relationship that goes by. You see when I smile, you see if I look away and I'm distracted. You know, so it's it's a very different type of contact, but even if you work remotely, there are opportunities for you to be able to actually connect with the person and connect with yourself. Look at, you know, look at yourself in that the uh, the camera and sort of acknowledge yourself and smile and say, "Hey, you know what? It's going to be a good day." And to the people that you're speaking with. So I think that's a wonderful way that we can close today and remind mm -hmm. people to, you know, to take a moment to be kind to yourself, to take a moment and connect to the people that are, you know, that you love and the people that are in your community and the greater world. And thank you so much, Meg, for your work. And for those of you that are interested in finding Meg's book, I believe it's available on Amazon and everywhere else. It's also, it's called Stressed in the U.S., 12 Tools to Tackle Anxiety, Loneliness, Tech Addiction, and More. And Meg, you mentioned that you also have a website. Where, how can people find you and get more information about yeah, your work? I have, a, I have a blog on stress. It's called SightOnStress.com, S-I-G-H-T, OnStress.com. And then you can get more information about uh, me, what I do, my book, and a link to that blog just on my regular website, which is megvandusen.com. 
Great. And for for those of you who are driving, please do not try to write that down. Don't worry. (laughs) It is in the show notes and you can find it later and click the link. It'll make it much easier for you. That's right. So thank you so much for joining us today. It's been such a pleasure to speak with you. And thank you for sharing your wisdom with our listeners. Thank you, listeners, for joining us today. And if you enjoyed today's show, make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any of the other great upcoming episodes of Evolving Digital Self. This season, we'll be focusing a lot more in on digital well-being and humanity and making sure that technology is something that can harmonize us rather than cause more destruction. So looking forward to hearing your input. Please feel free to send us some feedback. If you have any great show ideas, we're all there, always welcome. And uh, if you really like the show, we would love a rating and a review and share it with your friends because the more the merrier in this environment. Want to share the love. So thank you for joining us, and we look forward to next time. Bye-bye for now. Thank you for joining us for the Evolving Digital Self. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app now so that you don't miss a single episode. While you're at it, please give us a rating and a review and join the digital self-mastery movement to create more conscious use of technology by sharing it and telling your friends. Want to see where you fit on the digital self spectrum and how it might be impacting your business and relationships? Get your free copy of Digital Self Mastery today by clicking on the link in the show notes.